Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, this is a whole new level of nerd. Have you ever dressed up like a superhero and it wasn't Halloween? Have you ever tried to set the speedrun record in Super Mario Bros. 3? Nerd alert! Are you going to multiple Comic-Cons so you can one by one get photos with every cast member of Star Trek The Next Generation? Nerd. That is why you're not on the team. This is Northwest Nerd. My name is Nick Jaren. And my name is Dyer Oxley. Every two weeks, we'll take you inside the world of Northwest Nerds. We'll break down the news of the week. And we'll try to be a little bit funny and a little bit insightful while we do it. We're also bringing you original reporting. Each episode, Dyer will take you on a deep dive into a topic in Northwest nerddom. This week, we're tracking the growth of Emerald City Comic Con. Since this is our first podcast, we want you to, you the listener, uh, get a feel for why Dyer and I care so much about nerd culture by just giving you a couple hard takes that we have on things in nerd culture. So... Dyer, why don't you go first? What's what's one of the things that people kind of give you a hard time for? The way I look at this is these have sparked terrible arguments and debates with people I know and have, have basically fractured relationships. God, you're such when a I, nerd. Yeah. When I, <laughs> uh, the first being, uh, and uh, I, I'm not sorry for this, Avatar is the greatest looking crap movie that has ever been made. And Avatar is a terrible movie. I don't care what anybody says. I think that Avatar... James Cameron spent years and years and years touting that he was going to make this great technology. He did it. He did his research. He got some guys on it, and he made this great, great technology like two decades later, and people were freaking out about it. And finally goes into you know, Hollywood and some producers, and he finally says, hey, hey, check out my technology. Check out what I can do with it. They're like, oh, that is awesome. And everybody's hyped, and they go, where's the script? And that's why we ended up with Dancing with Fern Gully. I was going to say, someone uh, who had watched Pocahontas with their kids that morning yeah. said, I-, I think I got an idea. Yeah, I think that basically he was like, where's the script? And James Cameron just looked at him blankly and went, F-. Where we're going, we don't need scripts. Where we're going, we don't need scripts. Because <laughs> at that point, Michael Bay had done the damage. All right, what well, about, what about you? Yeah, you got, I'll do one, one next. Uh, Big Bang Theory, very popular show. People love it. I've heard you say this. Uh, dude, very this, popular this hurts show. hurts me is not a show for nerds. <laughs> it's not a nerd show. People like to say that it is because the main characters are quote-unquote nerds, but they're being made fun of constantly. The majority of the jokes are at their expense. This movie is from middle America, not nerds. Okay, That's well, why the ratings are so big. Very good point. I can't argue against that. I, 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 I want to defend that show. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, <laughs> really excited for your defense now. Yeah, I, I, want to, I really want to defend the show, first yeah. of all. I don't really care that much about it. <laughs> but if I did, when it's on TV, sometimes I turn it I just turn the volume off, but it's on in the background while I, you know, you know, play video games or something, but you know. Uh no, I mean it, there are some jokes in there for us. And mainly I, I always point out that there's some really great Star Trek jokes because That's me, your wheelhouse. That's that's yeah, that's in my wheelhouse. I actually can't think of anything to defend it cuz I don't know it all that much. I just It's a traditional sitcom with the Nerd draping, basically. Yeah. It's painted like it's supposed to be a show for nerds, but it absolutely is not that. There are stuff in there that we like. We can find funny, though. I mean, yeah. there are things. Yeah, there's, there's things that a lot of people find funny. It's the number one comedy on TV, but do yeah. not tell me that it's a show for nerds. It's not. Okay, it's a but, show for middle right. America so that they can laugh about 
oh, look at how weird the nerds are, and they're awkward around women. All right, uh, you're up next. What you got? Second observation. It's easy to pick on Michael Bay, I think, in this respect, because Michael Bay just has a career of ruining things for everybody. <laughs> My- Michael Bay's niche is just uh, let's let's take somebody's childhood and then ruin it. You know, so I, I didn't even go out and watch the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. I didn't want it ruined for me. Anyway, that's not who I want to uh, go after. Uh, I have had a beef with Zack Schneider. Mm. Uh, not personally. I don't know this guy. No, for it's all I know, for, for all I know, he's a lovely person. Uh, but he's he's not a very good filmmaker as far as I'm concerned. They keep giving him movies that are steeped in fandom. People were really, really stoked about The Watchmen. I wasn't really all that uh, well-versed in that, but as far as I can tell, everybody who was a really big fan of those guys did not really like that movie at all. But for me, watching Superman and for and watching these other films, essentially this is what you get. You hire Zack Schneider, and Zack Schneider... Don't, if, if, let me backtrack. If you want to see a Zack Schneider movie, just go find an eight-year-old kid and give him some action figures... And watch that eight-year-old kid just bash them into each other and go, boom, 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 because that is essentially the creative peak of Zack Schneider's filmmaking capability. They keep handing him these movies because he, well, what? He made 300, right? Right? Well, A Broken Clock is right twice. I think that right? is his one good movie, right? Does he have any other that's, good ones? Well, that's the thing is, A Broken Clock is right twice a day, right? And now they're waiting for him just to be right that second time. And they're like figuring, okay, we'll maybe give him this movie and he'll figure it out. Or well, when you put it movie. that way, I'm kind of giving hope. He's going to be good at one of these. I, I'm not. He's basically going to say, well, we could do this quality, but just CGI it. And that's basically, uh, yeah. I will say this in defense of Zack Snyder in that his visual style is derivative at this point because he doesn't do anything new but a lot of his characters get cosplayed because they're very distinct looking and a lot of them have a lot of really cool design elements to them like silk specter and watchman is someone that you see at every comic-con because the character just looks cool yeah and some of that should credit Zack snyder with i i will give credit to that i will give credit because the superman suit i don't think was entirely bad but yeah, not not doing good enough for me. I'm glad that we can we can look at look at something and not totally be disgusted, but I can look at the the something as a whole and and be nauseous. All right, me next. This one gets me in trouble with people who are not nerds because they've been told this lie for their entire lives and then they don't like it when someone tries to correct them on You're this. You're going to ruin my world right now. Star Wars is not sci-fi. Star Wars is not science fiction, and here's why. It's a space fantasy. A bunch of the quote-unquote science in it is completely unexplainable, even if you take an initial premise. Like, say, in, in, in other good sci-fis, maybe there's a time jump forward, and that opens the possibility to a bunch of different things that you could say and completely explain logically and scientifically. Or, say, mind control is a thing in a universe. Then scientifically you can explain all of that, and the reasoning why people are able to do it, that would be science fiction. The Force is a mystical <laughs> force, basically. Like, it, you cannot explain that scientifically. And they even tried to in episode yeah, one, decades after George Lucas probably had this shouted at his face every time he was talking to a real sci-fi head, telling yeah. him that Star Wars is not science fiction. But midichlorians are such a horrible excuse because they don't explain why people are born with more of these or yeah. where they get their power from. They're just like, well... 
the force comes from the concentration well, of midichlorians they're just in living using, beings. That doesn't make any sense. They're just using the best available science, you know. It's, it, they're just they're just adding another layer to the nonsense. Anyway, uh, Star Wars is fantasy set in space. It is not science fiction. This gets me in trouble with a lot of people, and it's probably actually, one of the nerdier stands that I actually. Take. No, no, no. I can't. I I could not agree with you more. And here's the thing: if you want proof of this. George Lucas has said it's not sci-fi. There you go. Himself, he actually said he was inspired by certain space shows, space movies. Star Trek was one of them. But mm-hmm. when he went out, he was more concerned about the opera, and he really liked, you know, at that time. That explains all the capes. Yeah, uh, he was. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was more interested in uh, the drama of everything and putting that in a new setting. And in the seventies, we were really into space. We had two thousand one Space Odyssey eventually coming out. There was that type of thing going on, and so that's kind of why he went there and said it in that. Okay, so that's my second one, and we'll wrap this up with the third one, so hit me with your your third one, and then we'll move on. Uh, This is um, basically a daily occurrence when I say something and people look at me blankly and just walk away because they don't want to even try. I have used the word frack in conversation as a swear word. Furthermore, I have used the word frail and yachts. And when I have, I have used an Australian space accent. Now, so, Frack, you mean not the not the Mark Ruffalo activist no. one, but the Battlestar Galactica. The use Battlestar of the Galactica. Word frack. But before there was Frack, there was Farscape, and Farscape had a whole range of swear words that they that they put in there. Um, son of Hazmat, Yachts, Frell. I mean, it was, yeah. You know what? I, we I haven't quite decided whether or not we're going to curse on this podcast. Why don't you just go ahead and use I'm those? I'm just going to use them. Yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just, just Frack and do it. Okay, we'll deal with that Yachts later. All right, uh, my last one, Pokemon Go is all the rage around America. They've lost some daily users by the millions, yeah. but this it, it's firmly in the zeitgeist, and I was briefly on board for the first couple of weeks. I'm a level 18, which means I had to log like a certain number of hours and kilometers playing this game. So that's considerable. But I eventually quit because I'm a huge Pokemon fan in general. Sun and Moon coming out in November. Very excited for that. <laughs> but... The through line for all Pokemon properties up to this point is that Pokemon should not be treated as property. They should be treated as friends. Like you should form relationships with them and train with them and they get stronger as you get stronger. And that bond is more powerful than any any moves or stats that the Pokemon has, etc. That's always been a pillar of this franchise. And Pokemon Go goes against that completely. These These Pokemon are disposable in that... If it has a lower CP than one that is identical of it, uh, CP being uh, combat power for the uninitiated, then you're ditching that one, turning it into Zubat candy or whatever, and then upgrading your other one instead. And here's why this is is annoying. Because I caught a really cool Charmander early on, even though I started with Squirtle, gave him a nickname, and then caught another one a week later that was three times as powerful, and now I had no no reason to keep Charmy anymore. I kept the regular Charmander. I gotta say, I think you win. With this one. It's the nerdiest take? That's, that's some of the nerdiest things oh, I've I ever it. heard. I only understood half of it. Pokemon is not in my <laughs> wheelhouse. But if, I, you are, if you are in Seattle and you're looking to play Pokemon Go at night, at a park where there are a lot of Pokestops, mm-hmm. Cal Anderson, Capitol Hill, Seattle, that's the park to go to. Also, they have Squirtles uh, sometimes in Hitmonchan's. Yeah, and lighting. And light, a lot of lighting, actually. Yeah. So uh, One night I went there, there was also a DJ. Some of our... Actual credentials, just as media people. I produce the uh, number one listened to 
radio talk show in the Seattle market. And uh, Dyer, your background's a little bit different. Yeah, I come from the world of newspapers, journalism. Um, very, very kind of old school, shoe leather to the pavement, you know, run down a story type thing. And I uh, do a lot of feature reporting, did a lot of uh, arts and culture editing for um, newspapers in the past. I now work in um, radio industry as well. Kind of come from uh, that background of journalism. And that's why we have you do the the feature every week. This week, mm-hmm. uh, you're taking us on a deep dive into the history and growth of Emerald City Comics. Yes. Emerald City Comic Con is a comic book convention. Wizard World, on the other hand, isn't necessarily a comic book convention. They have comic books there, but it's more a pop culture convention. This is my friend Rose. I hate to admit it, but she could pretty much out-nerd me any day of the week. So when it comes to nerdy events, conventions, and the like, I know I can always count on her to know what's up. City again, and then I'm hoping this next year to go to Phoenix Comic Con. That's not the Northwest. Probably go to Geek Girl. It's Geek Girl is a really cool con. There's a lot to choose from, especially in the Northwest. You got Rose City Comic Con in Portland. WizardCon is also a big event in that city. In Seattle, you have PAX, a gaming convention that takes over all of downtown. There's also niche events like Steamposium for steampunk fans, and Anglicon for all you Doctor Who fans, and SakuraCon for anime enthusiasts. Vancouver, BC has an anime convention as well that's called Anime Revolution. It also has Fan Expo which is a significant draw for nerdy fans. And that is just a handful of what goes on in the Northwest. But perhaps the biggest event of them all is Seattle's Emerald City Comic Con. In a relatively short period of time, it has become one of the largest conventions, not just in the Northwest, but in the United States. A lot of the credit for that, in part, belongs to this guy. My name is Jim Demonakos. My title is Global Director of Comic Talent for Read Pop. Since its first event in 2003, Emerald City Comic Con has become a powerhouse of Northwest fandom. People travel from across the nation, even internationally, to attend. It's become a pop culture phenomenon itself, and even inspired, at least, one song. But before we get into Emerald City's story, let's back up for a minute, out of the Northwest, over to San Diego to one of the biggest cons of them all, Comic-Con International. It began in 1970 and has since created a model for what other Comic-Cons aspire to be. Now at its core, it's a comic book event, a place for comic book fans to gather, talk shop, buy issues, and graphic novels. But it has grown to be much more. Today, it's where Hollywood will debut trailers for upcoming films. TV shows will hype their upcoming seasons. There's panels with writers, illustrators, actors, and more. There's opportunities to meet celebrities, not to mention the cosplay. Fans come dressed as their favorite characters, which naturally leads to contests. So there's a lot going on at these conventions, and I admit, I get overwhelmed at these events. It can take some planning to navigate it all. Back to my friend Rose. It's a place where people can go who love the same things and that have passion about those things and that they can express that passion with other people that love it as much as they as you do. 
it's weird. I kind of have a whole thing that I do. I go and I, well, I go through the schedule first and I see if there's any panels I want to go to because every convention has panels and panels will consist of like people plugging their books or people talking about Star Trek or just fans wanting to get together. And then there's meetups. And if there's celebrities that are really close to my heart, I'll try to seek them out and maybe get an autograph or do a photo op. When I got to meet Amanda Tapping from Stargate, I, I literally thought I was going to lose my shit. Like, I just... But it's I, not just I, that I passion that keeps these the conventions afloat. This is big business. That, that... Today, San Diego's Comic-Con draws more than 130,000 people every year who contribute an estimated $135 million to the local economy just around this one event. Comic-Con International alone takes in more than $17 million. After expenses, that roughly works out to about $3.5 million in profit. But it didn't always used to be this way. While today there's a wide range of fan-based conventions, that range sort of sprouted up over the last couple decades. San Diego's first Comic-Con in 1970 only had about 100 people in attendance. Today, a lot more people are coming out to them. And there's plenty to go around. I'm going to Rose City coming up. I'm going to go in February as Wizard World comes back to Portland. Now remember Jim with that company, ReadPop? As he explains it, over the years, companies have formed around putting on these events. ReadPop is among them. But there's also independents. There's a number of companies that do conventions as their as their primary business. There's also people entities that do it individually. I would I think argue that there's more single owner conventions or independent conventions than there are conventions even cumulatively that are being run by a corporation. Jim used to be one of those indies. He was the little guy. Making Emerald City this massive attraction took years of work. Uh, before Emerald City, I'd never put together a convention or anything in my life. I uh, actually came from, uh, I don't even know how to put it. Like, So I started off as a retailer. I owned uh, comic book stores there in Seattle. At one point, I had four stores, uh, all called The Comic Stop uh, in Seattle. The way it really worked out is I used to buy a table at the at the little show that they used to have at the Seattle Center, which was called the Seattle Commie Card Convention, and it would run two to three times a year. I used to go to all the Commie Card Conventions as a fan, first off, but then around 2000, after I opened my store, I thought it would be a good way to cheaply advertise about my store and also a good way to move products. So, for example, you know, you just set, you set up your long box and sell your quarter comics so that you can just get some of your inventory rid from your store. And that was fine for a while. It was fun. But Jim had always gone to other and larger comic book conventions. So he and others at the event started wondering if something more could happen in Seattle. And that got me thinking, like, well... There's no reason we can't. It's just that nobody is going to do it. So I decided maybe I should do it. And so I talked with my partners at the time. I had two partners uh, in the in the store. And I was like, hey, why don't we do why don't we try doing a con ourselves? And, you know, how hard could it be? Um, yeah, it turns out it's actually really, really hard. I did not live those words down for years. So Jim is planning the Emerald City Comic Con, 
But a couple of other things were going on in society around this time. Jim notes that the presence of the internet was creating a greater awareness for fans that used to be pretty much disconnected. When social media came around, that really blew things up. Also, what was once considered geek culture, well, that started to become pop culture. For example, Marvel Comics started making movies, and they were pretty successful. Well, mostly. Fantasy and sci-fi had also started to take over TV. Today, it's pretty hard to ignore that. Don't know what I'm talking about? I got three words for you. Game of Thrones. I would say what it is is a reflection of what fandom culture has done to pop culture. It used to be that George R. R. Martin, I would see him walking around San Diego Comic-Con. Like you could just walk up and talk to him. Now there's no chance to even do that because he's become so popular thanks to his, you know, his books turning into the, the top rated and pretty well loved television show. And that's just, I think, a singular example, right? The conventions are, are reflective of that. So There's geek culture been... is growing, and the internet is spreading word of this culture and its events more efficiently. It sort of created a perfect storm by the time Emerald City Comic Con came along. In 2003, the very first Emerald City Comic Con was held in what was called Quest Field. Today, it's called Century Link Field. It's where the Seahawks and the Sounders play. We spent pretty much about a year or so putting together the very first Emerald City Comic Con. And February 9th, 2003, we debuted the show. And we were hoping for about 1,000 people. We were trying to be realistic, too. We're like, hey, if we could get like 1,000 people, this is going to be really successful. And, you know, we ended up with 2,500 people, which was hugely successful. They had one successful convention under their belt, and they wanted more. Fans did, too. So immediately, I had everybody being like, all right, man, you got to do two days. And I was like, well, slow your roll. Like, let's just see how this goes. Let's just do another one-day show and see how it goes. And we did. And we did another one-day show in 2004. And it grew by 10%. Uh, we did like 2,800 people. So not exactly like, didn't exactly blow the doors off, mind you. But, you know, it just showed that we could sustain it. But it was still packed. It was still great. So we're like, all right, let's 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 try a two-day show. The first two-day show was in 2005. Emerald City Comic Con was growing and pretty fast. By 2007, around 7,000 people were attending. Then 10,000 in 2008 that's roughly enough to fill an Imperial-class Star Destroyer. Then 13,000 showed up in 2009. That's about the population of Deep Space Nine. Over the years, they started adding more attractions, featuring artists, panels, gaming centers, that was a popular one, and celebrities were showing up. By 2010, there were 20,000 people coming to Seattle for this one convention. And if there was one year that really took Emerald City Comic Con to the next level, it was that year. We had um, Leonard Nimoy and Stan Lee. Like that, that, that was kind of a one-two punch that really took our attendance and grew it quite a bit. You know, the combination of Stan Lee and Leonard Nimoy, those two, plus there was other, it wasn't just them. Like those, they just happened to be the headliners, but they were just big enough names that had never been to Seattle before in any significant capacity where you could say, I can buy a ticket to the show and meet these celebrities and hear them talk. That is awesome. And I think that's where things really took a, a real 
growth trajectory for Emerald City. It really put Emerald City on the map. In the past, there were a couple thousand people adding to the mix every year. But in 2011, the year after Leonard Nimoy and Stan Lee, attendance jumped by 12,000. That is a total of 32,000 people. Almost the population of Sunnydale, home of the Hellmouth. In 2012, it was 53,000. Now, we're exceeding the fleet's population in Battlestar Galactica. That brings us to 2013, when 64,000 people showed up. So at this point, we're dealing with about a medium-sized board cube in Seattle. In 2014, there were 70,000 people in attendance. That is the population of Collinwood, Australia, and also the only relatable number that I could come up with. In 2015, 80,000 people came to Emerald City Comic Con, enough to staff the Death Star with all of its gunners and all of its stormtroopers. So here we are in 2016, the very first four-day Emerald City Comic Con. Attendance hit 88,000 people. Just a side note, that is about the same number of people who attended the San Diego Comic Con in 2003 and 2004. It's so big that a few years ago, Emerald City had to move into the Washington State Convention Center, but they've even maxed out that space. We moved our entire gaming area into two floors of the Sheraton. So now if you go over to the Sheraton, the second floor and the third floor, it's all free as long as you have a badge. So if you paid for your badge for the show, you can walk over to the Sheraton and you can play tabletop games and video games until... Um, until midnight each night. 2016 was also the first year that Emerald City Comic Con was managed by Reed Pop, a convention company based out of Connecticut. You see, with all of the success around Emerald City Comic Con, this little independent operation, people started to take notice. Uh, after our 2014 show, Lance Fensterman, who's someone who I've known for a while and is uh, in charge of Reed Pop, he, he, um, he came around and gave me a call and was like, hey, listen, so, you know, we're looking at for a few people and for another great show to add to our portfolio. But a lot of it is we love what Emerald City is doing. We love what Emerald City has become. Would you guys want to come and be part of Reed Pop and try to bring some of that spirit to our events? And that's kind of how the conversation got started. I think uh, what he saw was that we were a team that filled a great need um, inside of uh, his organization so that by putting the two together, could actually create better events across the board. Reed Pop is one of those companies Jim referenced earlier. They're actually a pretty big fish in the sea of conventions. They're responsible for Comic-Cons in New York and Chicago and a slew of other major cities. Reed Pop organizes Star Wars and Star Trek celebrations, UFC fan events, and PAX in Seattle. They do that one too. Jim now lives in Connecticut near the Reed Pop headquarters. It's where he's contributing to more than just the Emerald City Comic Con, but he is continuing to grow it. A lot of that has to do with finding more space. Part of it was, okay, we add an extra day so we can add more time for content and for all the other things that we're doing at the show. But also, you know, can we make it bigger in in a way that feels good? You know, that the gaming area is one thing, you know, like we were talking about celebrities earlier. Could we could we find another venue nearby where all of a sudden, if you're interested in celebrities, you go over to 
don't know, I'll just throw out the the Paramount, right? The Paramount Theater. And I know that's not real, but still, like just as as an idea, you know, does the celebrity area become the Paramount Theater? And that just allows for more content to be put into the main building. Just to be clear, they have not actually decided to take over the Paramount Theater, but that's basically the idea. Looking ahead, this event is likely to take over more buildings and spaces around downtown Seattle, filling them with comic book fans and hordes of people dressed up as superheroes. So be prepared, Seattle. That is DJ Sassy Black, based here in Seattle. That song's actually called Comic-Con. You can find that on SoundCloud. They also have a website and a Twitter and uh, a whole bunch of other social media. A lot other great songs. I'm sure if you give them a Google, you can find them. Yeah, yeah, no, but um, they're pretty great. I actually ran into them at uh, the EMP when they opened up their Star Trek exhibit. Oh, DJing there. Nice. So uh, Emerald City Comic Con, uh, there's a reason why I wanted us to do this feature first. Yeah, and and just to let the listeners know as well, after each of these features uh, that Dyer's doing, where we do that deep dive into a world, in this case, the growth and rise of Emerald City Comic Con, then we'll have kind of a discussion section where we'll react to it, and you guys can react to it as well. Uh, we'll give out our uh, our social media at the end of the podcast, but this will be the section where Dyer and I uh, can talk about these things. And the most striking thing to me about the feature on Emerald City Comic Con is someone who has been going to that con f- since the second one, the growth has really, to me had advantages and disadvantages the advantages being obvious in that they're able to get bigger headliners and they're able to get more creators in there who maybe you wouldn't necessarily see in seattle if the con wasn't as big as it was and couldn't attract people all the way from the other coast and whatnot but the downside is that you can go to a con and have a completely different experience than somebody else in a bad way where yeah. you can have an amazing experience because you know how to navigate that convention. And if you're someone like me who's been going since the second one and you've been able to see the incremental changes and been able to navigate, okay, now they added a new floor to this thing or I need to physically walk across the street to a different building to get to uh, a panel or an event that I want to get to, it's a little easier for me to conceptualize how I'm going to tackle that day and how I'm going to look at the schedule and figure out where I'm going to go. Other people just kind of wander around, and I worry that uh, the 80,000 people who are coming to this thing, I worry that probably half of them aren't really getting as much out of it as they should. I'm still not up to that point. I'm I'm uh, I'm only a few years in at this point, and I only just now basically have got down to the point where, okay, one, I need to stretch first. Yeah. Two, I need to throw my elbows out. <laughs> well, I don't agree <clears throat> with that. Well, okay, no. I, don't, I do not condone violence, but I do condone space. Which also um, makes sure that you don't get like you know swapped in the head with somebody's prop sword or their wings, but um, yeah, you got to have your head on a swivel. Exactly. You never know when Harley Quinn's hammer, you know, and, like she turns around yeah. and bang. I need to take a break every few hours just just for time to cry. So you're one of these people who feel a little bit lost in the sprawl of this thing, which is completely understandable. I'm I'm really 
excited about how big Emerald City Comic Con has gotten, but I fear that we might be tipping in the wrong direction here in terms of how many different places you need to go if you want to have a full experience. You know, um, that I had a long conversation with Jim. and uh, Demonacos. Yes, and he, he kind of went over kind of a lot of that and, and really I mean this this you, like you said it's kind of a double edged sword you know um you you can't really have one without the other this is a popular draw there's a lot of people out there that are into this stuff there's a lot of things that they can provide these people so um yeah there's I understand uh people really kind of hearken for the days of, of when the con was smaller this is not the first time I've had this conversation with somebody yeah. but and um, usually it's someone even older than me who's talking about, yeah, well, in my day, yeah. we threw a con and only 50 people showed up. It was great. Yeah, and then... I, I, I can't imagine that being great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's like back back when he was, you know, over at the, over at the what was it, the uh, Key Center, back when they were doing that. I, yeah. mean, those are, I mean, those are great. And you still have plenty of those in the Northwest mm-hmm. that are small um, and kind of on that more intimate level. But, um, yeah, Emer- Emerald City... Uh, there's really no other way to go but then to expand. I mean, at this point, you, you just got to kind of accommodate more people. Taking into account what you just said, if they actually are able to grow and expand to other buildings and kind of take over more parts of downtown, I, on my personal level, will probably need less time to cry. Because um, <laughs> just the the overwhelming amount. And, and you know, I joke, but, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do to prep for the comic-con they've got a great app yeah they've got a thing that can the totally app the you app out. is a huge help the app is a huge help um and get it, yourself a mobile charger for your phone as well because you're one of gonna exactly lean on the the app and then there's also a map usually in whatever guide that they hand out when you're walking in when you pick up your badge as well get both of those things those are going to be huge helps the other thing that you need is well not necessarily need but this will make it a lot easier on you is someone who has at least been to Emerald City Comic Con before, like at any point in time, yeah. really, because they can help you decide whether or not, okay, am I going to bring books for people to autograph, or how how am I going to prioritize my time? I personally like to wander around Artist Alley and talk to creators, and the panels are great. The celebrity, I guess, I think are a little oversold, mostly because mm-hmm. I'm not big into celebrity anyway. But if that's your kind of thing, then prioritize that and make sure that you go through the proper channel so that you get a time when you can be there. And get your photo or get your uh, autographs and whatnot, but it's going to be very key for you to plan ahead. Yeah, and uh, you know that's the point is that there's so many different aspects to a convention like this. Someone like me, I'm slowly working my way through photos with all the cast of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's going really well. We'll get to that in a second. Yes, um, <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I mean, so there's that. Also, while we're mentioning the app, what's not on the app? is a map of all the power outlets at the convention center. So mm. that battery pack is an important thing. Um, there's a reason why I wanted us to do Emerald City Comic Con, the feature first. Episode one. Episode one. Um, and that's because, uh, one, this this is not a podcast about conventions. A convention like this, there's it's an um, umbrella for all things nerd. I mean, you've got comics, movies, TV, video games, tabletop games. Mm-hmm. Um, card games card games and then there's all these conversations we have around all these things whether they're at the con or outside the con there's issues um 
you know, we're going to talk about cosplay, not consent at, at some point. Yeah. Um, there's issues that surround all these things. And personally, someone with my background as a reporter, I just I felt that there was a lot more depth that we can explore um, that uh, that go kind of beyond our conversations that we have. So that's kind of the idea that I think we have in this is there's so many different people. There's so many different angles. There's so many different ways people nerd out about things and get geeky. This is not a podcast about conventions, but that umbrella, that's what mm -hmm. it's kind of about. There's so many things under here, and we just we want to talk about them, and we want to go in and dive deep so that we have you know other angles that you might not get just on the street. Nerd for us is an inclusive term. Yeah. We're not going out there trying to tell people that they're not something that they want to yeah. be. If you want to be a nerd, it's as easy as being really into something and caring about it and talking about it and sharing that enthusiasm with other people. If that's, you, that's being a nerd. If you want kind of a good context, there's a, uh, there's a great video went viral years ago about Will Wheaton talking about being a nerd and being a fan and being basically passionate mm -hmm. about something. Yeah. And that, you know, it's not a bad thing. People are now uh, realizing that, one, all the nerds that might have been um, used as a pejorative before but all those nerds grew up to kind of dominate industry and <laughs> dominate pop culture. I mean, everything that we're doing, uh, everything that nerds were doing for decades is now all over blockbuster films. Um, it's all over uh, multiple forms of storylines. I mean, you can get Shakespeare and Klingon now. I mean, it's this, yeah. is, uh, this is no longer uh, something that's kind of designated for the, the uh, you know, nerdy and that's not even wells yeah that's society. not even mentioning the the fact that most people's most prized possession is something that was the product of a lot of nerds in that that smartphone in your pocket oh yeah that you're probably listening to this podcast on was made possible by nerds that's right all right um speaking of the growth of emerald city comic-con we just this past weekend spent the entire weekend in portland for rose city comic-con and yes. i wanted to talk about this because rose city for me is so reminiscent of those early Emerald City Comic Cons where you can walk around and you can, it, it's a pretty intimate setting. There's a lot of people there, but if you walk up to a table where a creator's there, you can strike up a conversation. Or if you're walking by and you just happen to like a piece of art, you can talk to that person about where they're from, how they came up with these ideas, why this art connects to them, and why they decided to do a series where the Star Wars characters are burlesque dancers, for yeah. example. Uh, you can talk to them about that. And that's what's so magical about these settings. And the other thing about Rose City that I thoroughly applaud, uh, I actually did not get this experience when I got there, uh, when I went there last year for the first time ever, their panel programming was surprisingly strong. And yeah. maybe this is a product of it being Portland and their very liberal streak, but a through line for all of the panels that I went to, which ranged from indie comic producers to um to, to gail simone and the people from milk fed and bitch planet uh kelly sue DeConnick, the writer for bitch planet all the way on up to uh major publishers that i went to as well a through line for all of them was inclusion and the importance of inclusion and the problems that arise when you start to include people and voices that maybe weren't as represented before, but also the good that happens when you include all of those people and voices that you weren't including before, especially in terms of creators. So going to a panel like uh, one for people of color who are comic book creators, uh, I believe you were at that one too. Yes. I was very struck 
by the dual tone of encouragement in that it's so democratized at this point that you can put your work out there. And if there's an audience for it, the audience will eventually find it and your good work will be applauded at some point. Thank you. Whether Internet. or not you can, uh, <laughs> whether or not you can make money doing that is another matter. And that's yeah. a, that's a pathway that you can follow to that. But I thought that that was, uh, that was championed as a pathway while at the same time those people were saying, look, the goal is to eventually take over these major publishers. But the reason why we're doing crowdfunding and putting our stuff out on the web rather than trying to go through uh, like a DC or a Marvel is that they don't want to hear no. And it was very educational to go to from that panel then to Kelly Sue DeConnick's panel along with the uh, the Bitch Planet creators where she, she told a story of... Yeah, I did get no from Marvel one time, but it wasn't because of the feminism in what I was writing. It was because it would be a better story if we did it differently. Yeah. And I think that the fear of no for the new voices and new creators that are coming into comic books, uh, whether they be of the LGBTQ variety or people of color or whatever your background, because if you're not a straight, white, cisgender male right now, you're a little bit in demand, and you're also a little bit still being rejected by these people just, yeah. just based on what you're going to write about and the experiences that you're going to write about or, or draw. And I just thought that it was, it was amazingly powerful programming by Rose City Comic Con to have multiple panels that could span those different perspectives on that stuff. I was, I was really impressed by that. Yeah, side note about that. I mean, getting a no for those reasons I kind of you know called BS on. That's, that's not a cool thing. But as a writer... With a you know that background, collect those nos, get those nos. Those yeah. nos are like, those are badges of honor, you know. And um, you just I've gotten so many nos. I've gotten so many red pens taken to things that that I've written. And some of the stuff I've just said, that's a really great idea. Other times I've just said, screw you, I'm right, and yeah, I, you're I wrong go, on this one. <laughs> you're wrong on this one, and that's where I'm going. But yeah, um, you know, um, no, I think you're absolutely right with that, though, because another uh, I, I got the pleasure of getting to sit down with Gail Simone for a while, of course, of Birds of Prey and uh, Wonder Woman and Batgirl fame. I think those mm -hmm. are the books that most people know her for her work on those uh, DC titles. And one of her points was, look, I don't want to hear your excuses. People are going to say, no, keep pitching, keep putting your stuff out there if you need a connection if you need somebody to encourage you and maybe edit your work a little bit hit me up i'm available and there are other That's strong awesome. female creators out there who will do that stuff for you kelly sue again to bring her up she has an ongoing uh excel spreadsheet of quote non-dude creators that she makes available to publishers so that they can find the people and not yeah. have the excuse of well, I want to hire female artists, but I just can't find them. It's a horrible excuse. Yeah. And that, again, was another uh, theme that kept on coming up in all of these panels that I was at. It's just keep putting your work out there, and if it's out there, then people can actually find it. And before we get your letters of, you know, identity politics, yada, 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 that's not what's being said. What's being said is that, you know, you, if you want um, the perspectives we've had for decades and, and uh, the traditions we've had in pop culture – it's there. You just walk out the door and you can find it. But yep. there's all this other stuff out it's, there. It's that, very available. Yes, you know, and um, it's not hard to find. So all these other perspectives, all these other takes on things that bring make things fresh, you know, that bring um, just kind of inject new blood into things that, you know, you don't really see anywhere else. You know, yeah, you, you got to kind of go out there and search for it because they're not really being given that platform, you know, and I think that's uh, as 
as you know from the artist side of me you want all that you want all that for the good and the bad and you want it all kind of thrown in and, and you know kind of pushes things to the next level this was my first year going to Rose City yeah I, I'm very excited to hear your thoughts I had the same uh, kind of uh, impression that after going to Emerald City Comic Con and other conventions going to this one there there's an intimacy level that you don't really have elsewhere and I think that's not a dig on Emerald City uh, it's just kind of when something gets so big and you're probably a creator and you're in artist alley or you're an exhibitor, you got a lot of people coming through and you're shaking a lot of hands and you're just trying to kind of, you know, make your dollars so you can pay for your booth and, and you, there's just it can be a little overwhelming. Whereas at um at Row City, that that intimacy level's still there because they haven't risen to that level of attraction yet. Um there's, you know, lesser crowd. It's only two days. Uh, it's pretty easy to navigate around. Um, so that that kind of smaller party, you know, whereas, uh, you know, Emerald City Comic Con might be just kind of like a full rave in some warehouse somewhere and the music's <laughs> blasting and you're elbowing around, whereas... There's several different DJs. Several different DJs. And, uh, you know, Rose City is maybe at the coffee shop level where you're just kind of like chilling with your friends yeah. and, you know, all that. Um, Although that building down there in Portland, their convention they, center, can be a little confusing. Yeah, it is. In a, terms of layout. It's a little bit of a maze. Yeah. It is quite, uh, not a little bit, it is a maze for yeah. someone like me. But that and the maps they put on the programs this year made it look like certain things were on the same floor, but they were not. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's a lot bigger than you realize um, looking from the outside. But um, the, all of that said, I, I predict there's a clock on Rose City Comic Con. This thing is not going smaller this thing will only get bigger the only thing i think that's different about um rose city than emerald city i mean we've got other conventions here it's a much larger city um but particularly in that field uh rose city competes with uh wizard uh that comes through yep um another convention it's very pop culture friendly um checks a lot of the same boxes checks a lot of the same boxes and it kind of goes a little bit bigger but rose city um is is going to get bigger and it's going to grow and expand. Um, I don't think this is uh, something that's going to stay um, as kind of coffee shop size, as I as I said. Yeah. Um, especially when you got two guys talking about it on a podcast, telling everybody how cool that is, yeah. and then everybody's going to want to go there and dilute that. But it's really a uh, an Anthony Bourdain esque problem by talking yeah. about all the things we love on this podcast. We're going to voodoo donuts that yep. place. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be a line out the door. Thanks for listening. That was episode one, season one of Northwest Nerds podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Jaren. Again, Dyer Oxley also here with me. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as NWNerd uh, for Northwest Nerd. You can also go to our website, nw-nerd.com, where there's links to all of that good stuff. If we missed anything or if you want to chime in on anything that we talked about this week or if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, Hit us up on any of those platforms. NW-Nerd.com is where you can find every way to reach out to us. As General Adama would say, make it so. You're like a ninja crossed with a Jedi or something.